This programming is sponsored by Central Market, offering chef-prepared appetizers, mains, and sides for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, like quiche, grilled chicken, dips, and salads prepared daily. More at centralmarket.com. Welcome to Parapolitics. I'm Geronimo Cortina, and welcome to this uh, special edition, Brandon. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. This is our Thanksgiving show. We thought that it would be interesting and I think helpful to talk about amidst all of the chaos and swirl of negativity around politics, the things that we're thankful for in politics. So we've invited a great set of individuals who are politically aware, sharp and funny to talk about what they're thankful for in politics. Right. So we have our first guest, uh, Erica Grader. Uh, she's a columnist with the Houston Chronicle. Welcome, Erica. Uh, we're very happy to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. You know, politics has been up and downs. We have more downs than ups, uh, <laughs> one way or the other, or depending on which side you are. Sure, so, sure. Erica, tell us what are you grateful for politics uh, during this year? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny when uh, when when y'all reached out about this this podcast, I was like, well, I'd love to join you because there's there's just so many things I'm thankful for in politics, right? That it's it's hard to have a short list. Um, but, but actually, as you say, there's been a lot of ups and downs this year in Texas, especially in the nation as a whole. And I think in that kind of situation, I always come back to, I'm thankful for the staff, you know, who work tirelessly, who do a good job for their constituents, you know, even sort of off, off the radar, not in the headlines usually, but like, that's really important work people do. And, you know, Texas 7, I think, Lizzie Fletcher's staff has closed 6,000 cases this year. And certainly during a pandemic, the need for that kind of support is all, all the more important, right? Thankful, of course, for poll workers and election administrators who've done a good job helping us vote and keeping us safe while we're voting this year and, and last year as well. And um, I'm thankful for all the Texans who are involved in politics directly as voters, as volunteers, um, giving testimony to the legislature, you know. I think on the latter front especially, um, it was really moving this year to see how many families, how many parents, how many kids, you know, including kids, like little kids, turned out to testify. And I know that can be a a frustrating and sort of thankless exercise or it can feel sort of thankless and it can be painful to have to go talk about, you know, personal issues, serious issues about your rights and your well-being to a, a panel of sort of people in suits, right? And um, especially when you don't get the outcome you hope for, which was the case for a lot of these families. But uh, as a Texan, just sort of seeing that engagement, seeing that commitment and that passion uh, is, is reassuring, right? It feels good to see people care that much um, and to get out there and do something about it. So. That's my sort of perennial thankfulness, and that applies this year too. So you've been in and around Texas politics for a long time. You were a, a Texas native. Yeah. And so do you think that there's a lack of this in Texas? Do we lag behind other states? Are we kind of behind the times in national political engagement in Texas? Just one example is that like our voter turnout's really low compared to other states. Are yeah. Texans just generally not that engaged? Um, and I agree we should be thankful for that. Um, are we though seeing an upstick or are we seeing a downtick? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's funny because historically, as you say, we have had some of the lowest voter participation and engagement rates in the country, right? Um, and maybe that's a measure of the fact that we are a limited government state, right? So people don't you know, naturally think of that state government, what it does. And then even, you know, in 2018, we had that midterm cycle where there was huge turnout, record-breaking turnout in Texas. And it was like, well, we're breaking records for Texas, but we're still kind of coming to like the middle of the pack nationally, right, as far as our turnout rate. Actually, even in Harris County, I always kind of hope that Harris County will reach the turnout rate of Dallas County, just sort of as a Harris County, Dallas County, you know, competitive endeavor. But um, we'll see what happens, right? I think that this cycle we could see, 2022, 
we could see a pretty good turnout because to the point about maybe we're not engaged because state government doesn't often sort of directly impact us. This past year, we were all, most of us were directly impacted by the winter freeze, right? And so if that becomes a big issue statewide, I think that's the kind of issue that Texas can be like, yeah, you know, we, we, like, we don't ask the state for much, but we do ask the power to stay on during a freeze, right? We ask the water to keep flowing. So that'll be interesting to watch. I mean, on the other hand, like the other sort of side of the, of the equation, uh, given the sort of new maps that have come out, right, we're not going to have a lot of competitive congressional races or legislative races. So the sort of turnout you might have seen in Texas 7 or Texas 2 or 22 in 2018, where there was these competitive, you know, a, a good D and a good R kind of candidate, um, that's not going to be the case because you've got basically everyone in a safe seat, whether they are D or R, in only a couple of new districts, right? So that's kind of my uh, speculation about 2022 as far as turnout and engagement. But we are now, I mean, it's not really uh, surprising, but I, I was struck that we are now at 17, I think 17.2 million registered voters in Texas, which is amazing. It's up from, I think, 15.4 million in 2020, so uh, that's that's a good sign, people getting registered and getting involved. So. And if you were going to be a first-time voter this cycle, I would say it's fun, it, it feels good, you get a sticker, it's great, do it. The governor and attorney general have been fighting about voting rights and access, and obviously there's a big walkout this session. Is there a fear that we won't be able to get the same kind of volunteerism that we've had in the past to get to, to staff these polls? Um, are we in jeopardy of losing people who look at this and say, I don't want to be yelled at by people who think that the election's rigged? Yeah, I think that's a real concern. It's a really, it's, it's a, it's a very dispiriting concern to have, right? Especially thinking about, you know, in 2020, like the, the, the new voting rights or election integrity bill targets some of the innovations made in Harris County, but those innovations were made in direct response to a pandemic, right? So it was about how do we keep poll workers safe? How do we keep voters safe, right? And so things like drive-through voting, 24-hour voting, I mean, that was partly about, you know, spreading out lines at polls, making it more accessible so you could stay in your car and keep your mask on. We had those little, like, the, the finger things so you could, you know, get in sanitizing wipes and so on. And so the idea that, that after that kind of cycle where people were just trying to help help their fellow citizens participate, that they're now sort of in, in many jurisdictions kind of being targeted by people who've heard these sort of um, overblown claims about voter fraud, I mean, that's, that is pretty, pretty frightening. And of course, the poll workers don't deserve that, right? Um, on the other hand, you know, we have a lot of discussion about voting rights, and I think that kind of uh, discussion about voting rights, the taking away of things like drive-through voting, which is popular and people liked it, like, that could galvanize, the, you know, the opposite effect, right? If people see a, an effort to suppress the vote, right, that can sort of uh, spur them to make sure they turn out. So we might see that instead. Well, Erica, thank you so much. Happy Thanksgiving. Appreciate your time. And we're, oh, we're very thankful, guys. too, that we've got engagement. Okay, thank you guys for having me. It's always wonderful to join you, and I hope you all have a happy Thanksgiving. Well, our next guest is Charles Blaine, who is president of the Urban Reform Institute. Welcome, Charles. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. So tell us a little bit about the Urban Reform Institute. Yeah, so um, at Urban Reform, we just look at cities. Really, our focus is what policies help bolster the middle class and help create and sustain a vibrant middle class. And so we look at a lot of the issues happening in cities from affordability to transportation to just general good governance um, and try to highlight some of those issues and, and solutions and also get people more involved in what their local governments are doing. Oh, perfect. So you are a great person to ask this question to. What are you thankful for in politics? There's so much negativity and just obviously the churn of daily uh, you know, interactions can be grating for people. So what are you thankful for in politics? 
Yeah, so it's um, I, I, probably more unique one. I'm actually thankful for the unity it brings. I know we always talk about the divisiveness of politics, but truly there are so few vehicles that, say, a bunch of neighbors who don't know each other can come together and use to make a, you know their collective voices heard. Or even an issue we focused on here in Houston a couple months ago, we did a charter amendment petition, and we had groups ranging from the Tea Party to you know socialist groups, and everybody came together to work together to advance that reform. And so... Um, we always talk about the divisiveness, but I think it really does offer a really great opportunity to come together and unify around issues we care about. That's fantastic. How do we harness that in the future? How do we make Texas a better state for people to interact with elected officials and to you know, have discourse about public policy? How do we improve that moving forward? I think the, the biggest thing is education. A lot of folks that we speak mm -hmm. to, I go to civic clubs and just different groups, and, and a lot of people don't really see it as their role to be involved in what their government's doing. They think it's for the lobbyists or mm -hmm. for you know politicians or candidates or, or groups with a lot of backing behind them. But it's everybody's role to be involved as little or as much as you can be. And so I think the first part of that's education. And the second part, I think, is really just fostering community. I think it, particularly this past couple of years, we've lost a bit of that um, with not being able to gather there as much as we used to, but really finding that sense of community and those shared bonds and trying to bolster those and bolster those relationships so that we can advance the issues that we need um, in our communities. And so I hope to see more of that. Again, you know, mm -hmm. politics can be very divisive, but I think there's a bright light if we're able to, to harness some of those things. Yeah, I, I like I like that uh, positivity um, and I like, you know, looking forward. So, Charles, when we're thinking about, you know, civic participation, when we're thinking about, you know, how to better construct, because it's the fabric is the cornerstone of a democracy, how public policies are implemented, measured, so on and so forth. What about young people? What would you say to young people uh, uh, since, you know, we know that there are uh, in terms of uh, generational groups, one of the groups are, you know, on average, least likely to participate in, in, in our civic life. What would you say, why is this important for them to really join uh, this public discourse? I mean, it's important for them in particular because a lot of the issues that, that and I'm a young person, so a lot of the issues we complain <laughs> about are issues that many times are made worse by government or by certain government officials. Now, no one in particular, no party in particular, but oftentimes a lot of the issues we complain about are, are directly driven from government. So, you know, one of the issues that when I launched Urban Reform, we talked a lot about was rental rates. And we were trying to get people to understand mm -hmm. that you might not pay a direct property tax bill, but property taxes are baked into that. And so, that was something that we used to try to encourage folks who are low or lower, uh, excuse me, low income folks or renters, just young renters to understand that they have buy in into the process and they need to be focused on that. So I think it's really just trying to get them to understand the correlation between the issues that matter. Um, you know, we had seen massive protests on the street this past year. And so people are starting to get it to some extent, but I hope it doesn't take extreme things mm -hmm. like, you know, police brutality events to get people out on the streets. I think people need to recognize that a lot of the issues that we deal with on a daily basis can be solved locally, um, and that should be more cause for them to get involved. Speaking of getting involved, I mean, obviously COVID has disrupted so much of our lives, how we eat, shop, and everything else. How is it disrupted, or maybe how has it enhanced the ability to connect to government, government officials, or the kind of policy choices that are made. Um, that's, I think, kind of a new model going forward. So how do you see COVID as shaping that either as a bad thing or as a good thing? 
I mean, honestly, I think if, if there was a good thing to come out of COVID, I think that was it. You know, prior to that, prior to COVID, you had to sit in a city council meeting for six hours mm. to, to get called up for your two minute, three minute speech. Um, <laughs> and most people can't take the time off of work to go do that or they got to go yeah. pick up kids or they have to do all this other stuff. Same thing with commissioner's courts. You might be sitting there for 10 hours waiting to speak. But now you can call in on your phone or video in. And a lot of times if you're on your phone, you can just put it on hold and go about your business until they call you to speak. And so I really think it lowered that barrier of entry for folks. And it also was less intimidating. They didn't have to go up to the mic and they didn't have to, you know, kind of present in front of this august body of of folks looking at them. Um, They were able to just pick up their phone and say what they had to say. And so I think it was a a positive effect on being able to work with and, and communicate with and understand what is happening with your local government. And I truly hope we can keep some of those things in place post COVID because I, I, that reducing that barrier to entry is the most important thing to getting people involved in local government and government in general. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. Super interesting that part. And also, you know, what about these issues of, you know, just being a social media activist, right? Uh, what it takes to make that jump and actually, you know, whether you vote for one party or the other doesn't matter. But, you know, getting people out to vote, because that's going to be the quintessential manifestation of public participation in our democratic process. Yeah. And and it's it's so important. And I think, you know, there, there's been a lot of stuff I've been frustrated with politically over the past year, a couple of years. <laughs> but one of the, the big things that I've been frustrated with is kind of this push by folks on my side. I mean, I'm a conservative folks on my side to try to seemingly discourage people from participating in the process by calling into question the process. And so Mm. it makes people question it and say, well, then why should I go vote at all? And, you know, there was a huge thing after um, after the election when they had the election in Atlanta and there were I mean, in Georgia and there were Republican celebrities, if you will, out there saying, well, don't even go vote. It's not worth it. They're going to steal your vote anyway. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy then because you're telling people don't go vote. Guess who's not? These are your people you're telling not to go vote. Um, and so it is frustrating to see people discouraging people from voting. Um, and, and I mean, listen, you can vote the way I vote or you can vote any other way, but you should do it. I mean, it's, it's a part of your civic mm-hmm. duty. Um, and it also guides what happens in your day to day life. I mean, that it is the direct outcome of, of who is elected and who's put into office. And you have a say in that. So why not take it? People have died and, and, you know, unfortunately, probably will continue to die for the right to vote. And so we should not be taking it for granted. But unfortunately, Fortunately, too many people still do. That's great. On that note, Charles, thank you again so much for joining us and happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. Well, thank you so much for having me and happy Thanksgiving to you guys as well. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Thank you. Our next guest is Jen Rice from Houston Public Media. Jen is a reporter. Uh, She is uh, versed in all things Houston, has interesting breaking stories. It it is, I think, probably the best Twitter follow in all of Texas. So if you aren't following her, Get out there and do it. You won't be sorry. Jen, welcome to Party Politics. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here with you guys. What are you thankful for in politics? Okay, so um, what am I grateful for in Houston politics is a very tricky question to answer. Um, (laughs) it, it, It took me more than a minute. I'd say I thought about it for like a solid half hour. Um, but what I've come up with is, um, I'm really grateful for the members of the public who show up at city council meetings and they give, you know, public comment on what's going on on the agenda. That's so interesting. So 
examples of times where you've been taken by what they've said and, and maybe persuaded? Right. Well, you know, over the past year and a half with the pandemic, I mean, people have had, you know, very serious situations going on in their lives and that, you know, many of them have shown up for city council, which it's been virtual over the past year and a half, which Mm -hmm. has been really interesting. You know, um, now they're sort of combined. You can testify in person or um, virtually, but it's just been a really fascinating year for public involvement, I think, in in the city council process. Um, Yeah. I mean, I I would say you know, early on with um, with rent relief, like people would kind of, we had a lot of people speaking up about mm. how they wanted the um, Federal CARES Act money to be spent. Yeah. So, you know, you had lots of people showing up and, and telling the mayor and council members how they wanted to see that CARES Act money spent. Uh, it also makes me think of uh, with police reform, you know, so many people, you know, make time to, to show up and express what they want to see with that. And then most recently with the Rice um, Ion Project. Mm, interesting. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah. So um, this is sort of like the most recent of the dramas with City Council. Um, <laughs> there's this um, there's this huge development in Midtown called the Ion, and it's like this tech hub area. It's innovation district. It's very like future focused. Um, however, um, it is going to impact the third ward community, and that's an area where you know neighbors are really concerned about gentrification and um, their ability to stay in their homes. So for a couple of years now, uh, community organizers, neighbors, and third ward have come together. They have this coalition of like 30 groups. It's a, it's a big group, and they've said they want a community benefits agreement. They want the developer to negotiate directly with the community and um, they haven't invented this model, it's a national model, and they're asking for a community benefits agreement, and that's not something we've seen in Houston. So they're they're asking for something new. And so, you know, we just had this debate at city council, the city basically um, approved an agreement between the city and the developer, and so many people came out to speak saying, that's not what we asked for. Wow, interesting. So do you think that this has, you know, uh, potential implications for the future in terms of how the city conducts its policies and the politics of the city and that people really see that these, uh, you know, that participating in democracy may have uh, a positive impact or may have a negative impact. What's your take on that? So I think that when we're speaking specifically to this example, I think that the organizers might might be feeling pretty discouraged at the moment. But, you know, as someone who, you know, watches every week all these, you know, all these different issues come before council, from my perspective, you know, they forced a conversation that would not have happened otherwise. Mm. This is not the agreement they wanted, but had they not been organizing, there would probably not have been an agreement at all. So, you know, to me, it looks like when you when you organize, when you show up, um, you do get to have some say in the conversation. And I don't know if that's enough to give people hope to participate, but from my perspective, um, I feel like it it means something. That's wonderful. And the people who participate, what's their incentive? How are they approaching it? Are they excited? Are they uh, emotional? How are they communicating with their elected officials? I would just say that um, usually when people, 
when we have members of the public who speak at city council, they're usually really passionate because they've made time, you know, during our weekday. Yeah. This is not necessarily um, something everyone's able to do. So they're like, they get two minutes to speak usually. And they're like usually pretty fired up. They know what they want to tell people and they want to feel heard. And I just think it's really remarkable. And I feel lucky that I get to watch them do that every week because I think so many people think someone else is taking care of my rights. Someone else is speaking up for my community mm. and for my neighborhood. Mm. And actually, I guess I would say, you know, I'm just really grateful for the people who are showing up. Thank you uh, for coming in on the show and talking about what you're thankful for. I thought that was brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jen, and also for sitting down in those, uh, you know, very, 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 sometimes very long uh, city hall meetings. So we yeah. obviously appreciate everything that you thank do you. For, for us and the community. Thank you. Let's get down to the pumpkin pie here, Geronimo. Let's talk about what we're thankful for in politics. Obviously, we spend every week talking about the kind of dangerous side of politics and sometimes the scary parts of politics. But let's talk about the things that we're thankful for. So I'm going to pitch it to you. What are you thankful for in politics? Well, I think that, you know, again, despite this uh, number of uh, of uh, issues that we have had, I think that one of the things is that People, even though maybe politically polarized, at the end of the day, people can come together, right? And mm. especially here in Texas, we have seen it. We saw it with the snowstorm in February. People start to pitch in. We have seen it during, you know, uh, flooding events, mm. so on and so forth. So I think I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, we still have that humanity within us and that we're going to take care of each other and yeah. you know texans stepping up to the plate when you know people are in in dire need so i'm thankful for that despite the political process and also you know despite the political process we've seen you know some politicians working together from different aisles when these situations happens and i hope that looking forward uh, this can be translated into having a dialogue in the policymaking process. That's great. I think that's right. I mean, we've seen tragedies that have unfolded and we'll continue to see these tragedies. The disaster at Astro World here in Houston, the shooting in El Paso that was racially motivated a few years ago. Texans come together and the outpouring of sympathy and support is really compelling. And I'm glad that that happens. I hope it happens more. I wish it would happen more. And I think there are a lot of things on this that we could, you know, we could do better on and really engage with each other more on. Right. And that needs to be translated, right? That needs to be translated into actionable points uh, regarding legislation or public policy or something like that. Because then, you know, if not, it has a, an unintended consequence. But, and you, what are you thankful for? I mean, in addition to, you know, me and, and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Every week I get to talk with you for at least half an hour. I'm guaranteed it. That's yeah, well, it's a little bit the more. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we talk daily, but I mean, yeah, yeah. like for this, oh, I'm okay, guaranteed gotcha, this time. Gotcha, so gotcha. I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, and in addition too. to being very thankful to Houston Public Media for putting this all together and Absolutely. for all the staff and uh, and uh, and our producer to pull this together. Um, I, I'm very thankful for. So we have much to celebrate. But in politics, I am thankful that our institutions are still intact. There was, as you recall, Geronimo, real worry that it was going to unravel. And I feel like we're at the precipice of this issue where it's complicated to keep our institutions legally 
intact. We had a stress test of this in the last couple of years. And I think that despite the fact that it was never perfect, it always held. The fear is that the vision that the framers put together centuries ago was unable to sustain itself across this kind of rising populism, anger, um, and a kind of lack of real engagement. I think that we've shown that we can be resilient as an institution and across the board. The fact that there's attention to this is really important. The fact that the media have, have, uh, you know, kind of rallied around these questions, the fact that we've had the court system hold up, this is all really good. Now, it's hanging by a turkey leg (laughs) in some cases. So we're still not out of the woods, right? Uh, But I do think that there's opportunity here. So as Ben Franklin said after the Constitution was signed, it's a republic if you can keep it. And I think that we've been able to keep it. And so we're happily doing that. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll also say I'm interested in, you know, the fact that we've got these rules that are going to, uh, I think, keep us for the future. So this is a a welcome, I think, thing. And we should be thankful that despite all of the churn of this, it it held up. Right. I think you're, I mean, 100% uh, correct on that. And I think that people do not, uh, you know, sometimes realize the value that having a solid institutional life Mm. is, is, is so important to maintain our democracy, right? In other parts of the world, you know, other countries would be in peril right now, would be having uh, so much chaos that did not happen here thanks to more than 100 years of building these types of institution, building a strong executive branch, building a strong legislative branch, and certainly building a very strong judicial branch and maintaining the respect uh, between each other. And I think that that's extremely important, right? Even though that, you know, uh, former President Trump got to nominate uh, a number of uh, Supreme Court justices, the Supreme Court still, I think, values its independence, right? Values the way and the procedural ways of performing a good job and values maintaining that independence and obviously their own reputation. So, you know, those things are something extremely valuable that we have uh, 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 here in this country. And that also translates, uh, you know, to different levels of government. So I think that's right on the spot. And, you know, hopefully we can uh, throw a little turkey wing there to hold that (laughs) turkey leg that is holding the institutions. You got to put some mashed potatoes around it to keep it nice and solid. And some gravy, right? (laughs) And some gravy. Uh, And some gravy and cranberry. And then, you know, you can make uh, some sort of cement or, uh, uh, you know, what is it? Concrete or something like that that will keep it together. And participation. It's it's good. Yeah, Yeah. 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 With some sourdough. Uh, homemade sourdough and then there Mm. you go yeah i think that yeah the the leftovers are calling right (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly so i think but i like the way you put this i mean you said that each institution does its job and they're strengthened and we have to have that work because if any one of them gets too strong it becomes out of balance and the whole point of this is that there is this balance right they're all engaging in these activities that provide for the checking of each other. And so exactly. this gets back to the most basic civics, right? How the three branches of government are mm-hmm. in 
this balance. But there's a problem, and people have written about this, and my students are <laughs> doing this for a final exam, asking questions about the strength of the presidency, for example. If it right. gets too strong, then they're able to effectively control you know, the two other branches. They're able to rewire the system in right. a way that was not intended. Yep. These are complications, and yep. I think need to be very carefully calibrated. Absolutely. And the way to calibrate is through public participation in the electoral yeah. process. And that's the only way, right? If yeah. you don't have a strength X, Y, Z, then you go out and vote and replace those members. And then there you go. Yeah. So uh, on that note, well, uh, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Uh, I hope that you all had a wonderful uh, meal with your families and friends and, and and keep an eye on on why it's important to give thanks in these in these things in this season that's a great sentiment indeed echoing that happy thanksgiving everybody um we've had such a great year and we're very excited to get to do this so thanks for listening and hang out with us once a week to talk about politics Big thanks to our producer, Troy Schultz, who is going to try to fry a turkey. <laughs> Godspeed, Troy, on your quest. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be brilliant. We want to see pictures. Uh, and thanks for all your help on this. And also thanks to everybody at Houston Public Media for putting together great shows for us, making us look good and sound good. Uh, and uh, we're very thankful for that. <laughs>